1: unexplained deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis.
0: And we are back. So welcome to our second episode here of Unexplained Deaths. And I am very excited to bring this case forward to my two good friends, Ian and Chris. And just in case you're not quite sure who they are, well, first of all, I'm Deborah Davis, Psychic Medium, just to get that in, in case you didn't know. We have Ian and Chris. So, Ian, do you want to introduce yourself first?
2: Uh, Debbie, great to see you again. And uh, I I tell you what, I'll give the star of the show his opportunity to give his uh, input first. And I'll follow him if that's OK with you. So, Chris, let's have your words of wisdom, please.
1: Hi, Debbie. Thanks for inviting me again. Looking forward to to today. Um, Yeah, I used to be head of the murder unit. For um, a large police force, and um, I was in the police for thirty-one years, so lots of experience of dealing with um, homicide and serious crime. So, looking forward to talking about this one today.
0: Wow, amazing! And you, Ian?
2: Yeah, well, I love the way he's so laid back, uh, uh, Debbie. It's almost like oh, I was the head of the murder unit. It's like I used to work at the newsagents, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, he does play it down a bit. <laughs> Debbie, hi again, and and, and hello everybody. Um, if you follow the first podcast. Uh, You'll know that I'm a postgraduate criminologist, journalist, feature writer, and a holder of a qualifying law degree, and like Chris, a, a former senior police officer, but not to the levels he got to. And if you knew all that, fine. If you didn't, you now know it. And many of you will be aware that, uh, you know, Debbie and Chris and I have been working on Explained Deaths. And we've got a very unique approach, which we're going to look at, certain events and turn them upside down and inside out and also we're going to give our verdicts as well but what i would say if any of the discussions that we have jog a memory then i want you to contact crime stoppers if you suddenly think you know i know about this particular situation from a personal point of view then i'd encourage you to report that otherwise like before sit back listen carefully to our discussion You'll certainly pick up some new learning, particularly from the approach that uh, Chris will mention in terms of the police uh, investigations. And Debbie and I will announce our verdict on the uh, situation we're going to look at today at the next podcast. Chris will always remain neutral because that's what the police do. But in the previous podcast, we investigated the really upsetting case of the death of a young man called David Plunkett. And I'm going to turn to Debbie first of all. And you did give your verdict last time, Debbie, but uh, over yeah, the past few is. days, I wonder are you still adamant that that's how you think that, uh, yes, David yeah,
0: yeah absolutely, yeah. I would, I would never change my mind about that. No, that's okay, that's definitely my opinion.
2: Good. Well, listen, uh, my verdict is it wasn't an accident, I perhaps won't go any further than that, but I don't agree with the coroner. I don't think it was an accident, and I think there are other ways in which it happened, but it wasn't an accident. And the reason I reached that conclusion is very much about the position of the glasses and the mobile telephone. If that was accidental, I don't think there would be that degree of order. So that is my my verdict.
0: Thank you, Ian. So today we're actually going to be talking about Zygmunt Adamski, and this is actually quite a famous case really, because we're going all the way back in time to 1980. But even though so much time has passed, no more light has ever been shed on how this man died. He was a 56-year-old male. He was a minor. He went missing from his home in Tingley near Wakefield in Yorkshire on the 6th of June, 1980. He'd actually gone out that day to do some shopping. And that was it. He wasn't seen again for five days. He was actually found on the 11th of June where he's just absolutely mind boggling. This is, he was found 20 miles away from where he lived on the top of a 12 foot pile of coal. Now he was apparently found in his suit, but his shirt, his watch, and his wallet were missing. And his clothes were in disarray, you know, they weren't kind of buttoned up properly and et cetera, et cetera. On the back of his neck and his shoulders, there were these mysterious burns. And there was a strange liquid that was never identified, even though at post-mortem it was sent off to be forensically analyzed and they just couldn't conclude what it was. Um, James Turnbull, who was the, the coroner who actually dealt with Zeigman's death, he said that this was the biggest mystery of his career, and that is still the case to this day. And another strange thing is that although Siegmund had been missing for five days, he only had a one-day growth of beard. It was concluded at postmortem that he had died of a heart attack. And there was a constable, Alan Godfrey, who investigated Siegmund's death. He noted that he was on top of the coal pile on his back with not a bit of coal on him and that his eyes were wide open. And not only did he have burn marks, but all of his hair had been shaved off as well. And that was really strange because this man had thick, wavy hair, and he'd always had that that hair. He'd never, ever shaved his head in his life. And the other thing is, it's interesting to note, is that when he was found on the top of the pile of coal, he'd only died just a few hours earlier. And the actual coal yard where he was found, someone was in that coal yard that morning, and he left about 11 a.m., and he locked the coal yard up. And when he came back a few hours later, that's when he discovered Siegmund's body or he saw a body on the top of the pile of coal. He didn't climb up it and disturb it or anything. He left it and obviously just called the police. And Siegmund had, had only died a few hours before, but he definitely was not on the top of that pile of coal when that guy was there in the morning and left around, we say, 11 o'clock. I'm not too sure of the time exactly. But it's just very, very strange. Now, the officer that was investigating this, Alan Godfrey, around six months later, had a very bizarre experience himself with a herd of cows. He literally was working one night late there in the police station. They had a phone call in saying a herd of cows have been seen on a street. They must have escaped from a field. And... He went out with another officer to obviously go and see what the cows were doing. Um, When he got there, the cows had gone and they went on a bit of a chase all around the town. Many calls coming in saying there's a herd of cows here. They get there, the cows had gone. Then eventually they did see them. I think it was in a field or a park and they were herded up. But they have no idea how those cows managed to go from one place to another in such a short space of time. That night, and that was about six months after uh, Ziegman Adamski's death. And I've got to say, Todmorden, which is the area we're talking about, uh, I mean, they had so many sightings of UFOs in the 1980s. I think they probably still do to this day, to be honest. Anyway, that's that's the rough idea of the case. So I'm really actually excited now to hear what you both think.
2: I must admit that that my jaw was dropping a bit there as you, as you went through this. I guess my first default position was to dismiss anything of the sort of UFO and what have you. But I'm let, let's let's just, just talk this through. The thing, first thing that came to mind is, is 1980. Chris and I both had a full head of hair, so we, we are going back in time. But Chris, while I think about this, thing, okay, um, this is reported to the police. What's the first stages of investigating this really bizarre set of
1: circumstances? Well, the things that you would do now are slightly different from the things that you've done then, because you're quite right to say that this is 41 years ago, so it, we were in a different world. But you know, the first thing is looking at him and his lifestyle and where you would expect him to be. You know what's his normal pattern of behavior why would he go missing so you know you might the police talk about hypotheses So, what are the three possibilities here that he's left of his own free will and doesn't want to be found uh he has uh, gone out and has been injured and is uh somewhere where he, he he can't get help or or something more sinister that he's been abducted or murdered so um you know you've got to look at those three possibilities i think in today's society, with uh, mobile phones and technology, it's slightly easier to start proving and disproving these things than it probably was then because, you know, don't forget then, there wasn't mobile telephones, there wasn't computers. So, you know, that that task would have been a lot more difficult. But, you know, my first thoughts here on investigation is, you know, why did he finish up where he was and where has he been for those five days? Because uh, assuming that that's correct, that he had died relatively uh, close to being found. We, we've we got five days here where we don't know where he was and we need to establish where he was.
0: You
2: talk about this hypothesis, um, and uh, that's a tongue twister in itself. I was just I mean, going to say that.
0: <laughs> it, are,
2: are these listed in a murder manual? I mean, h- how do you reach these particular, you know, potential outcomes then? You mentioned three. Yeah? How are those framed?
1: Well, you know, you don't get a list of them, but you get trained in terms of that's how you should be thinking. You know, what are the three most logical possibilities here? Then you set your investigation around those. So you're looking to prove or disprove those theories. Um, of course, one of those theories wasn't UFOs, although I respect Debbie's view on that. You know, it, it would have probably been those three, uh, and that certainly would have been mine at this stage. So, you know, we need to see, let, let's look at what I call victimology. Let's look at his background, where he should be, what was his relationship like? What's his financial position? Was he in relationships with other people? Was he involved in criminality? All of these things that are possibilities about why he would have left his house and he wouldn't have returned to his house and where he was in those four and a half, five days.
0: I think one of the biggest things is how did he end up on the top of a 12 foot coal pile with no coal on him?
1: Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's, we're not going to completely disagree, Debbie. I I mean, that is very unusual, um, you know, for somebody to be up that high.
2: Chris, you were very gracious in basically dismissing uh, Debbie's theory of UFO. Why? Because the area, I understand, is, is littered with this unusual phenomenon. Why would you as a police officer dismiss that straight away?
0: The Pentagon have admitted themselves that there are unidentified flying objects around in our atmosphere First
1: of all, I didn't completely dismiss it. What I said was I would focus on what are the three likely possibilities I've never dealt with anybody who's been abducted by aliens and uFOs so that's the first thing so we've got to look at actually what are the three most likely possibilities when somebody goes missing and they are they go missing because they want to they they have are injured and they haven't been found or they have been subject to you know they've been victim of crime uh, so to speak so that they they are the ones I would focus on. I have to be honest with you, if I'd gone to my boss in that job and said, you know, uh, Gov, this is a UFO job. I I wouldn't be here now talking about my 31-year career, that's for sure. But in terms of, you know, Debbie's psychic capability, and we look
2: at basic human intuition, the, the gut feelings we have, No one ever argues that they have a degree of validity. You know, you're walking down a particular street and you sort of the nuance is that that, that something is threatening. So in terms of our own intuition, arguably, that is a psychic capability. Why is it that mainstream dismiss someone of Debbie's calibre when she starts to say this sort of stuff?
1: Well, you know, the first thing is I, I totally respect Debbie's view. She knows I don't agree with all of them. Some of them I do. But in answer to your question, Ian, you know, you've got to look back in history, and I'll go back to you know, why do people go missing? And I can give you thousands and thousands and thousands of cases that will be uh, in one of the three that I mentioned there. What I can't give you is any definitive proof that people have been abducted by aliens as a as an investigator, you always stick to the three most likely possibilities.
2: Let's come from a criminologist's point of view just for a moment and let's get to the boring bit, shall we? That we are as human beings, we are drawn to fantasy. We we like fantasy, we like awe, we like things of difference. And we're actually hotwired to isolate meaning from events, which can often lead to misconceptions or or miss perceptions about situation about what was assumed versus what was actually happened and there's a lot of research that tends to suggest that existing knowledge or fascination with a primary subject in this case UFOs can also lead to diverse subjects being connected with apparent certainty and clarity so there is an awful lot of psychology around the way that we interpret fantasy, and we can often make those, those connections. And it is very often linked to a human characteristic of trying to please others. We are hotwired to trying to please others, particularly those in authority. And witnesses can often maintain a myth if the questioner supplies a persuasive narrative. And, uh, for example, if a police detective uh, during an investigation says to a witness, uh, did the suspect have a moustache, then yes, they've got a moustache now. So I guess my technical question to you, Chris, is how do you lessen the likelihood of leading witnesses down a particular path and encourage them maybe to 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 fantasise about something?
1: What you've just referred to there as a closed question, what colour was his moustache? Or, you know, you say to somebody, you know, what kind of trainers was he wearing then? When you're getting a description, worst thing in the world you can say, you should be saying, can you describe his footwear? Did he have anything on his face? Keeping the questions really open because you don't want to be leading people down that path. And I've actually done a group exercise with 12 people where I've said, describe this person. I've shown them a video. They all get together and speak about it and convince, they come up with one description, which is crazy because nobody would be able to do that. Everybody will have something slightly different. So whether you're getting a description, whether you're getting an account of circumstances, it is about you know, an open mindset from the investigator, whatever you know or you don't know about it, and also open questions when you're speaking to them.
0: Well, do you know, I just want to say, if we wind right the way back to 1600, okay, and I said to you back in 1600, guess what? I'm going to be able to put my finger on the wall and suddenly this room is going to light up I would have been burnt at the stake and everybody would have laughed me out of town for sure saying that's impossible, absolutely ludicrous and ridiculous. And then, Hey, presto, we end up with electricity and the ability to flick a light on, don't we? I think everybody, you know, thinks we only have to think of the norm as in, well, this is the way it's always been and we can't kind of think outside of the box, you know. So mm. it could be that that you know cases like this have been dismissed by the authorities simply because it's the far-fetched possibility of a UFO, you know and we can't consider that as being an official option because it's ridiculous.
1: i I, I don't disagree with you and of course i'd always say the room lights up when you walk in anyway debbie but you know moving on i I think you know there's loads of cases that that i haven't investigated over the years that i look at and think this is really odd what happened to this person they've done everything they can the police to try and find this person and they have just they've just disappeared and you know like i said in the last podcast and i'll say again for a, for an adult to go missing, especially now, and not leave some kind of evidence of their existence, it's virtually impossible. If there's no evidence of their existence through mobile phones and all those other things, then then the likelihood is they're not alive. Um, you know, back in the 80s, of course, there wasn't that technology. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with you. But, you know, when you work in the police, when you do these investigations, you know, you are looking at what are the most likely possibilities.
2: Chris, I want to come back to this notion of keeping an open mindset and, and, and i i know where you're coming from but 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 i, I reflect back on operation midland where carl beach the the fantasist that that had the met over that convinced detectives that there was this you know paedophile ring you know with uh, leading politicians which was a load of old nonsense so how do police officers
1: keep this open mind Well, you know, I don't want to talk about individual cases, but there's lots of evidence of where, you know, I'm talking about what should happen and what I would expect from people that have been trained properly and operating properly, and that is that open mindset. And and that is very evident now in all senior investigating officer training is about not just going – and that's what hypotheses are about, of course, because you can't come up with 10, 20 hypotheses. You've got to have three working hypotheses, which are more than likely to be the ones you're looking at. If the evidence takes you away from those, then fine, then we'll look at others. You're not stuck with those. So I might get to day 10 of an inquiry and say, well, hang on a minute, those three we've disproved, actually it looks more likely that either this didn't happen at all or it happened in another way. So, you know, you've got, you've got to have an open mind mindset that can be difficult when everything's telling you that something's happened in a way in which you think it has, but, but it's very poor investigating to do it, to, to do anything else.
2: Okay. I, I, I want to test your open-mindedness here then, Chris, you talked about a hypothesis. I really struggle with that word and you have a, starting point of of, of maybe two or three let's turn it on its head now and reverse engineer that hypothesis based on the information that debbie's given you give me a explanation as to how this guy ended up on this coal pile with with no evidence that he'd actually been taken up there and 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 the you know curious marks and, and liquids on him what would be your reverse hypothesis of what's happened from your experience
1: well, that would be based on, I mean, the, the pathologist is the most important person in any unexplained death investigation, he or she, because they're very experienced. Um, you know, they, they are doing this day in, day out. And and I noted what uh, Debbie said there about the pathologist being completely struck by the these injuries. So, you know, those injuries are important. They're important if they cause death. They're also important because it's likely that somebody could have been tortured or was has been injured. So you know, I'd have to look at all of those things together and then start coming up with other possibilities. You are leading me, of course, to well there's no other possibility it's got to be a UFO. In twenty five years I'm happy to be proved wrong. Um I'll go back to what I said. Anybody who's listening to this that's in the police now that goes up to their boss and says, Gov, it's a UFO, I, I can pretty much guarantee what that response would be. And they they might be they might be wrong, might they, but who knows?
2: Have have you in, in, in your experience and Chris ever dealt with a with a murder, particularly? And it's edging towards the twilight zone where you think, God, this is so bizarre that I've even I'm struggling. Or or are they pretty much as they are when you sort of you know look at the scene and, and carry out your investigation? I guess what I'm I'm suggesting is. Are there any that are are even close to what Debbie said that
1: you've dealt with previously? No, not that I've dealt with, but, you know, I'm aware of others where you kind of think, well, how on earth could they have finished up there? They haven't been seen by anybody. There's no CCTV. There's no phone evidence. They are very strange. I can't deny that. I know all of the ones I've had have been, uh, you know, I wouldn't say they were easy, but they've they've all reached a conclusion that everybody's satisfied with. I think, you know, we're talking about ones that are... Very unusual. I'm going to push you further, Chris, on this one before handing
0: back
2: to, to Debbie. you retired senior police officer now. What does your gut
1: feeling tell you about this then? I don't think it was a UFO, um, to be honest with you. I think he has probably been involved in something that he shouldn't have been and he's got himself involved with people he shouldn't be involved with. You know, it sounds to me he's got marks on him, he's had his hair shaved off. That's uh, consistent with, you know, torture not, not so much having your hair shaved off, but, um, you know, marks on the body and those kind of things. And then, of course, where that body is situated is, is very unusual. And it's obvious somebody wanted to make it look unusual. You're going to ask me how he got up there without any coal on him? I have no idea at all.
0: Well, you can only imagine it would be a cherry picker, but that would surely attract attention and the coal yard was locked. But you know something, this reminds me of something my dad used to say to me when I was little, because obviously I used to stand there and say, you know, the ghost stood in the corner and my dad would be like, oh God, what? There she goes again. My dad said to me, Debbie, it's the living that hurt you, not the dead. And we're all familiar with that, aren't we? It's the living that hurt you, not the dead. And I used to stand there as a very little girl and say, you say that, but that's because nobody that's dead has come back to you to say, actually, do you know what? I was bumped off. I was, I didn't fall down those stairs accidentally. I was bloody pushed. You know, they don't come back to say it to you. So, you know,
2: <laughs> De- Debbie, how, how do you deal with these frustrations? Then, because you you have dealt with the police before, you, you you've given information. How do you deal with this frustration of of being, you know, pretty convinced that a certain thing has happened because you know, you tuned into certain things that perhaps the majority of us aren't. How do you deal with that frustration?
0: Well, I've learned something over the years, and that is that you can you can do something, you know, like like I've done in the past where I've helped the police and I've been right, and that story has been told, and you'll have, you know, however many people listen to it and go away saying, wow, but then you've got the rest of the people out there that don't hear the story or even if they do, they always want to find a way to try and say in some way that it can't be right. You know, it can't possibly be true. And then they just carry on with their lives disbelieving. So you never can convince everybody of everything, even when you actually have the truth sat there right in front of them. You know, that's just the way it is. So I don't lose sleep over it. I've got currently around 570,000 people that follow me on Facebook who actually, you know, do follow all of my work and they know, they know me. So they, they kind of, they understand everything I do. They know I'm totally transparent and I focus on them, on all of the people who, who do know me so well. And then the doubting Thomases that are out there, that's neither of you two, by the way, because I know you've both got you know a lot of respect for my work, but the millions of doubting Thomases, well, they just need to just scroll through and spend some time going through my work to actually see what I'm about. And if they still don't believe, fine, go and follow somebody else. That's not a problem to me.
2: Brilliant. I'd just like to finish with perhaps... One other piece of research that was prompted by the discussion, it was the the Loftus experiment that was first published in 1995. And it it really looks at when groups of human beings talk about an event and try to make sense out of it. And and basically, the the social experiment, a number of close family members outlined several accurate and verifiable life events that the eventual uh, interviewees had experienced. Then the interviewees, the subjects, were interviewed about these factual experiences, okay? And alongside that, a completely false scenario was thrown into it. And on this occasion, engaged with the premise that they, as a youngster, had um, gone missing as as a child on a visit to a shopping centre. And incredibly, 25% of those participants, so, you know, a, a quarter of those participants record some information about the phony situation. And the reason that I put that in there is that we are we we think we've got this clarity of thought, and that's the beauty of our discussions today, that we are so fallible as human beings that I guess we shouldn't dismiss anything in terms of our mm. explanations, even UFOs. So, Debbie, I'd like to give a concluding statement before I hand back to you, and thank you, Chris, for your uh, input on today's podcast. Um, I think our investigation has has gone further than our previous one. I I found this uh, compelling and baffling, but I'd invite you, the listener, to uh, reach your own conclusion and reflect upon the submissions and let us know your judgments. Again, argue against yourself, folks, yeah? Even if you've got a very fixed position, argue against yourself. And if that passes that argument, then I encourage you to share your viewpoint with Debbie via social media. Again, we'll reflect and I'll uh, give you my verdict. I think uh, Debbie's given a very persuasive verdict already, but I'll give you my verdict on the next podcast. Um, But, Debbie, over to you, and uh, I'd like you to bring today's uh, intriguing podcast to a conclusion, please.
0: Thank you, Ian, and thank you, Chris. It was a UFO, definitely. It was a UFO. (laughs) Definitely. And they wanted to know all of the the workings of his body and everything else. And yeah, part of all their investigations. So that, that's my personal opinion. But I do respect, obviously, everybody else's opinion, too. If you would like to add any more to to this case and you know more about it or you know you know somebody personally involved etc and you want to get in touch, then please get in touch by email at hello at unexplaineddeaths.com or just mention something on social media, you know, on on a comment, etc under the post for this podcast for instance and I look forward to seeing Ian and Chris again for recording another interesting episode in the very very near future so take care everybody and we will see you soon bye